Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Jared Zhao. He is the CEO and founder of uh, Ask Edith. And we did a call a couple of months ago when I was inquiring into Ask Edith to see whether it would be helpful for our company. Um, definitely seems like an interesting product. So welcome to the show, Jared. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, what you want to give my listeners a little rundown on what Ask Edith does and what what what's cool about it? Sure. So Ask Edith, we built a search-driven analytics tool. What that means is our users, they come to the platform and any sort of dashboard or report that they want to see, they can just ask using plain language. The problem that we're solving is that um, tools like you know, Tableau or Power BI, these are very powerful tools, but require uh, expertise and a lot of training to use well. Really, the training is the critical piece. So with Ask Edith, our business users, you know, kind of non-technical users, can achieve a lot of the same kind of output and analytics without any training and uh, instantly just by asking. That's cool. And how far, how long have you been doing this? Uh, so we've been working on Ask Edith for about a year. Uh, we raised a bit of funding before, so I would say fairly early stage, but um, you know, product is is actually quite mature. And are, uh, did you is it is it an LLM or is it some other technology? Uh, yes, LLM is is core to Ask Edith. Um, there's a couple other components as well. Yeah. So how did it how did it come about? Like, I imagine that the if you've been doing it for a year. Uh, you know, ChatGPT came around in November. That was the first wave, and then, and then in March, bigger, bigger wave. Once people really realized what they could do and what what it would pay for, how has that been? How did you hear about LLMs? Were you are you part of the like? Are you friends with the researchers, or how did you think about this technology before it, the wave actually started? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we've been in the data space specifically for a, a long, long time. Um, actually, before Ask Edith, we had a product that was essentially a visual editor for data warehousing. And, um, you know, we had this problem where our users were completely non-technical, mm. but really under this kind of thin veneer of, you know, this product was actually a very technical product. Mm. So we had to do a lot of training for our users. That's when we first started looking at large language models as a way to kind of solve that problem. Mm. You know, maybe the, the non-technical users can just ask questions and just describe what they want to see, you know, the same kind of description that they've been doing for their data teams, but instead to our platform, and then we can use the large language model to translate that into what we call our data flows. Um, it was very obvious for us at the time that we needed to kind of make that front and center, though. So we, we pivoted to ask Edith. So to answer your question, I mean, we've been in the space for a long time. Large language models have actually been, you know, kind of discussed. Um, in the startup circles before it became, uh, let's say, um, a national, international sensation uh, back in November. And so what was it like uh, seeing that, uh, using the technology, 
uh and like you know this may be sensitive but if it's not too sensitive like are you actually using the chat gpt api or did you guys have another api is there another vendor that you guys are using um and uh like what was it like to kind of like witness that craze like and have you had a lot of inbound from that that craze that started to uh i mean you know i, I probably was one of those inbound as a potential customer uh fine i think i found a website who knows how, how i found it but um but like have has that well what's that been like Oh, it's been insane. Um, you know, as a small company, you don't expect large brands to reach out. But um, what ChatGPT did was it made everyone think, like, what could AI do for my job and my team? So we're in the data space specifically. You know, VPs of data, directors of data, even CIOs are now thinking, you know, what can AI do to improve my efficiency and my accuracy? Um, and, you know, being such a nascent space, there just aren't any, say, big incumbents that, that they can automatically go to. What that's kind of translated into is a lot of inbound, really interesting inbound for us, um, really has opened the market, I, I would say. Uh, and so what do you, what are you guys, did you guys build your own LLM or are you guys using a different LLM? Like what's the deal there? Oh, um, so we do use a bit of open AI. Um, we actually use a mix. You know, for us, the underlying core technology can be swapped in and out. Um, but so what we do is we evaluate based off of, you know, our needs. And it's not even uh, like exclusively English to SQL translation. There's a lot of other things that we use language models for. And, you know, different sizes of language models and the different ways that they've been trained lead to different uh, performance characteristics that we evaluate on. Um, short answer is, I mean, yes, we do use OpenAI, uh, but you know, there's also many, many options these days. For other LLMs, and I imagine that that's gonna. What What's your take? I've been asking this question a lot of people. Do you think that uh, these AI, like OpenAI, will have a business moat, like a sustainable business moat, uh, or do you think that the technology is going to become decentralized pretty quickly? And to set that up a little bit more, Facebook just open source their llama model um and to have somebody like facebook who who has traditionally been someone who's been considered as an ai leader to just open source it i think a lot of what happened in that decision making was just like well chat gpt already opened it or you know already came out with a bang facebook's probably not going to be able to to do as much so we'll just open source this and see what happens uh what do you think about this decentralization of uh of ai tools open sourcing and such do you think that's going to happen or do you think it's going to be a, a few small players that own the space you know i think it's going to become uh the core ip of the models um is going to become pretty decentralized and open source is going to make huge strides in the next few months they've already made huge strides the challenge though is that um you know deploying a language model is not as simple as just like taking something from open source and like running it. You know, OpenAI has done a lot of work around making the, the language models efficient to run, um, you know, uh, having an inference mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure where you can just hit it with an API and you're not paying for any of the kind of the idle time, you know, when you're not using the language model. They've solved all of these other problems. Um, I would say that as of today, OpenAI, I mean, I have no idea where this is going to go. I think OpenAI today has a moat, definitely. Um, you know, just in, in even in the IP, nothing matches their GPT-4, and there hasn't been any good alternatives to uh, running the models. That they definitely have a moat there, um, but you know, moats can degrade. I don't know if that's going to be the case, say three years from now. Yeah.
Well, and, and, you know, there are so many problems that AI could solve and open AI, you know, it's a smaller business to start up so they can move quickly. Uh, but at the same time, the problem space is so vast that I see them taking off a lot of it, but then there are all going to be all these other problems. Like, uh, for example, like an agent running on my computer that is personalized to me, like that seems that like something that open AI might not be the best at solving. Um, and that some, some open source solution might, might change it. What do you think about that? No, that's totally right. Um, I mean, recently people are getting these large language models running on their Android phones. Um, pretty soon you'll have it running on, you know, Apple watches and, um, you know, whatever Apple does with their vision. Pro. Who knows? I think the future is, uh, going to be really interesting for sure. Yeah. Do you think we're headed for a singularity? Do you think we're in a singularity already? What do you, what's your take on singularity in general? I think, I think we're not quite there. You know, um, there's a, there's a simple litmus test for this, which is if, you know, take the, the most challenging problem that you are trying to solve in your work, describe it in as much detail as you can and pass it to GPT-4 and see what it puts out. Yeah. Yeah. What, what we found is, um, you know, the, the outputs from GPT-4, they loosely sound like a solution, but they're really not. Um, GPT-4 is not quite there yet. Like, I think a singularity is, is where, um, you know, let, let me define this a little bit. It's where the language models start to kind of feed back into themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you get this kind of like runoff in, into, uh, like, say, super intelligence. We're not quite there yet. Language models, um, you know, they're, they're not quite there yet, but I, I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Uh, so, so the really interesting what you just said there, because you, you gave a little, so let's, let's go into that definition of the singularity. The definition of the singularity is when the, the model itself, the AI itself starts to become so powerful that it can do feedback loops that are not capable of being uh, uh, deciphered by outside humans. Is that an accurate way of representing what you just said? Uh, right. Well, the, the singularity is, is when um, improvements become exponential, right? And it's, I mean, it's commonly accepted. I don't know if this is the actual definition of the singularity is that the language models start to feed back into themselves. That's mm -hmm. where you get the exponential improvements from, mm -hmm. um, which may not be the case. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would agree that we're not, we're not there yet. It's really exciting what, what GPT-4 can do. Uh, I've thought through a lot of business problems, but then there's been a lot of dead ends as well. And the key, the key dead end so far is that it doesn't connect to out outward sources there are the plugins but for some reason i have a, a bug in my gpt4 account where i can't access the plugins uh have you been able to access the plugins do you or do you pay for gpt4 uh, do you actually plug it into various softwares outside of it um so we don't use uh the plugins directly um there are some really interesting tools that you know connect gpt4 to the outside though um if you've heard of one called perplexity mm -hmm. very interesting search engine um you know, highly recommend uh, you play with that if you haven't yet. Is that the, that's the one that synthesizes um, a lot of different studies and stuff like that? Or no, that's um, it's the one that's, that's like a, yeah, it's, it's the one that's like a, like a search engine. It's a lot like Bing chat, but you can, um, you know, focus on different data sources. So you can say, uh, okay, I want to only pull from Reddit. I want to only pull from, you know, XYZ data source. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Oh, interesting. It's got YouTube and Reddit there and as well. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to start playing around with that. Okay. So let's go back to ask Edith. One thing you mentioned in our call a couple months back was that um, you guys, you give, you have this technology 
plain language. Anybody can use it and get and query their data and understand things about their data without having to mess around with SQL. Uh, and you said that you built your own cloud architecture for any client. So they're all, they're, you never see the data, um, but the the client can host that on you. Can you go into more of what that means? Yeah, right. Um, you know, I think uh, our industry is very, very unique. You know, as a, the data industry is very unique in terms of uh, security requirements. You know, we can't just be hosting customer data and we can't, you know, we can't definitely can't be using that to be training our AI um, is a massive breach of security and trust. Mm. So what we've had to do is, um, you know, one is we've had to get certain security compliances relating to the way that we operate as a business and the, the product and the architecture that we've built. That's the SOC 2 compliance. Um, we've also packaged everything that we built into um, you know, a private cloud deployment. So all of our customers, if they choose, they can deploy this in their own environment. It can be air-gapped from the wider internet and can be co-located with where their data currently exists. Hmm. So it's the maximally secure kind of deployment of Askita. So let me run that by. So basically, if I have my own company, I use Askita. But then I have you. You guys basically give me a whole cloud sourced cloud architecture in order to query my own data, basically. So that's one that's of the right. that's one of the values that you offer because cloud cloud data Kubernetes. I believe I've talked to a lot of engineers about like Kubernetes, and I don't know what it is. I don't really have a good understanding of Kubernetes, but they hate it. They say it's really hard to use, basically. So what you're doing is you're taking a lot of that technical challenge, uh, simplifying a lot, and then and then providing this product that also has its own cloud architecture, basically. That's right. Um, what it is, is a, is kind of like a one-click deployment. It's called a Terraform module. So Terraform allows you to do a one-click deployment into uh, your own, uh, you know, private cloud. And it just spins up everything that you need to run at, you know, you know the database, the networking configurations, uh, the servers, and it's all, you know, within your own environment. Interesting. Um, and, uh, okay. Is that new? Is that something like new in the last few months or has that been around for years? You mean for Askita? The Terraform module, the ability to, uh, to like, to like spin up somebody's own cloud architecture in a way that seems pretty simple. Well, so this is something that we built at, oh. you know, so Terraform is a tool. Um, we created a Terraform module for the Askita platform. Got it. Um, Terraform modules have existed for a long time, but we built ours, you know, fairly recently to to service our customers. Hmm. Have you heard of a tool called Urbit? U R B I T. Um, I have not. Yeah, Urbit. I'll I'll just give a little uh, kind of a walkthrough, basically. So Urbit is um, this thing that is a is a new operating system with a whole new networking protocol, with a whole new functional programming language, all built into one with the idea of decentralized, permissionless uh, cloud architecture. Everybody gets their own virtual, virtual personal server. Uh, it sounds like something kind of similar to that cloud architecture thing that you've been mentioning. Um, just from what I said, what do you think about that? I mean, this sounds great. I think that, you know, one thing is, uh, you know, going forward here with, with AI specifically, yeah. I'm going to loop this back to AI. Um, a big question is always, if we're sending information to these kind of language model providers, what are they doing with, yeah. with our information? It's very important to have good 
security controls in place. So you, you have, um, you know, a good idea of what your data is being used for. What you don't want is, you know, our data is sent to some, you know, third party language model provider. They take that data and then train it into their model. And then a competitor starts to use the model <laughs> that was trained on our data. And we need to have very good kind of security and controls in place to prevent something like that. And that currently does not happen. So anything that's putting in anything that anybody puts into ChatGPT, they're basically giving over control of their data to this thing that, and I, my assumption is that they're using that data in order to retrain the models to make it better and better. Because I think I was talking to somebody the other day was, was that that initial release of ChatGPT in November wasn't so much like, okay, we're going to create this consumer product that's going to go like wildfire. We're totally ready. It's more, and I haven't fact-checked this, but it's more, they were like back in November, they're like, we need people to use this because we need to train the data so that it can get better. And that's when they released it. And then it took off like wildfire. Um, uh, and so, and like they, they're totally going to use all of that data for their own training of the model. What you said about a competitor then using that uh, there, then a competitor of maybe ask Edith or somebody else or whatever company goes and uses the API. They're essentially now using an API that's been trained on, um, on a, a, another, another competitor, basically. So you're saying, cause in data is so important that, uh, that it's now becoming the fundamental IP is like, what is your data? And then, and then that's being basically put into this, this machine, which is preventing a lot of companies from using AI as well. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they haven't come out and outright said that they're using this data to train, but that is the assumption. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, in the space of kind of like secure uh, LLMs for enterprises, it seems like it's going to be a huge business. And I know NVIDIA has thought a lot about this. Are you guys competing with that or are you guys something se separate? No, so we're not a provider of uh, language models. Um, you know, in fact, we'd be something like a customer of, um, you know, maybe NVIDIA's uh, language model service. Yeah, interesting, because you would want your own language, large language model trained on your data that could essentially help you to, to understand what's going on. Uh, but then, so who are your big customers right now then? Um, so I can't speak about our biggest customers. Um, we do have, you know, NDA signed. Um, I can give you a, maybe a, a rough sense. Um, um, so the largest one today is a publicly traded real estate company. Mm. Um, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of really interesting use cases to help, you know, navigate uh, the current market. Interesting. And so it's basically a way of, of so normally in order for people to get access to their data and do SQL queries on it. What what are like, so speaking from the technical side of somebody who knows SQL and has this large database for, let's choose a totally different example of like somebody maybe in the military or something like that who has a whole bunch of data. Uh, and then what would, what would a engineer traditionally use SQL for uh, to understand about their data? Yeah, so... Um, you know, a lot of times it's really just service servicing um, like business requests from, say, a business stakeholder. You know, some question like, you know, which of my customers are most likely to churn? I just want to see the customers that, you know, that have uh, not been using our product who have open uh, service tickets. We say that this is most likely to churn. Could you please make a report for me that identifies these customers? That's something that we would translate into SQL, you know, using our uh, you know, enterprise data 
and to build a dashboard or report that answers that question. Interesting. So, and, and with Ask Edith, that whole process is essentially much simpler that an engineer or that a business person doesn't have to know SQL in order to translate the question into SQL so that they can get that report. They can just say, hey, give me this report. Um, and is that right? That's exactly right. So instead of sending a request to the data team and it sits in someone else's inbox, uh, when they get to it, then they get to it. They get the dashboard back in a couple of days. Now the business user is just coming straight to ask Edith, typing in their question. And, you know, five seconds later, you just immediately get a graph that answers that question. It's mm. a very powerful experience to have it so fast and so easy. Mm. That's cool. Do you guys have demos of that? Like on YouTube and stuff? Oh, we do. Yeah. Yeah, we do. It's actually, um, you know, on our landing page on our website on askedith.ai, uh, that one of the first things that you see is our demo video. That's cool. Uh, and so I would love to take this conversation into kind of the philosophy or the implications of AI. Well, like, where do you think we're headed? If you were to guess, like, what, what's 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 going on? Where are we headed in terms of AI? Yeah, I think um, I think the writing is on the wall. A lot of jobs are going to be at risk. Um, now that's a very normal thing, you know, for just looking back on human history, time and time again, people's jobs are being replaced. People have to upskill and learn new things. You know, AI is not a silver bullet. It doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't replace just general human intelligence, right? What they say is that AI replaces, uh, tasks, but doesn't replace jobs, right? Jobs consisting of many, many different tasks. Um, if I had to take a stab at, you know, where society, where, where we're headed, um, there's a time that people point to in the Roman empire, when the Roman empire was taking over all the neighboring states and turning, um, you know, the, the able-bodied men into slaves. And so that was, uh, displacing the, uh, the, the farmers that already existed. Um, and then what happened was, um, uh, something like universal basic income. You know, all of this bread and wheat was being produced for, you know, for free, essentially, with, with slave labor. Um, and it was free bread, free circus for everyone else. Um, so maybe something like, you know, tax the the AI companies, tax the, the companies that do all of the automation, and then um, you'll have to maybe provide something like a, like a universal basic income for, for everyone else. And it, it might not cover, you know, your full income. You might still need to go do something else. You know, the, the automation is not going to be automating everything, but maybe a significant percentage of, of jobs and of work might be. That's my thought. I'm not sure. Well, and let's go into that. So, cause in that scenario, we have a whole bunch of people who either upskill really quickly and get into the train where their jobs are secure because they can manage the thing. A whole bunch of people can't do that. And then certain people who continue to own the companies and own the kind of like the the the, um, the equity, the ownership of the companies. And so like if we do the universal basic, basic income, then we'll just need to essentially tax that group of people who own everything. Um, but then when you bring the tax question into it, 
first you have a anarchic global system that corporations already kind of like can go to Ireland where they don't have to pay any corporate taxes and 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 get out of that and shift all of their liabilities to Ireland uh, so that they don't get taxed and lower their effective tax rate. Um, and then you get the other argument, which is that a higher tax rate disincentivizes actual innovation as well, because then people aren't as incentivized if they're going to just have to give up most of it to the government, then they're then they're going to disincentivize from actual real innovation. Uh, do you have any thoughts on like that general sphere? We don't have to get political or anything like that, but like, what are your thoughts on 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 that general thing of just like how the the chessboard is going to change, basically? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea. This is the direction that we're going to go in. This is in my world would be a perfect solution. You know, tax the AI companies and then um, you know distribute a little bit, uh, and then you'll still have to work a little bit. You know, to to make you know to cover the full. Uh, you know, kind of income that you might want to get the the lifestyle that you want. And people can be a lot more kind of thoughtful about the jobs that they choose to do instead of just, um, you know, trying to make ends meet. Uh, I don't know that this is the likely solution. You know, I, I, you know, we all know that government moves very slowly. And uh, yeah, like corporations might try to offshore certain things. Um, in fact, this might be the very unlikely solution. Yeah, uh, we don't know. Well, and a key Um, question, yeah, if you have anything else to add, let me know. Yeah, no, um, go ahead. And so a key question as well. So if we look back at electricity, so electricity was a lot of people compare AI to electricity, although I think it's probably going to be more impactful than electricity. But electricity changed some fundamental things about the nature of work uh, and also the nature of economics as well and led to a sort of deflation. Um, And then of uh, another recent kind of trend in that similar thing is the China's huge supply chain and their ability to manufacture things for really cheap led to deflation of different products. And so like a question that I have, is AI going to lead to deflation uh, in certain things? Because it, it definitely, it, it feels like it's going to make services cheaper because now a business can go in and um, instead of having a whole bunch of workers, they have one kind of senior level person who is able to use this AI. And this depends on how quickly AI advances. We talked about how GPT-4 isn't ready for that yet, but given how quickly they're moving, uh, it might be ready in a year where like, do you think that it's going to lead to some sort of deflationary uh, effects so that not only do, are we going to have like, you have the universal basic income that allows people to have money that allows them to purchase their current uh, lifestyle, but then also the lifestyle itself might get cheaper because of all these changes that AI might check. What are, what's your thoughts on the economics of AI? Oh, absolutely. We don't even need to go that far. You know, you don't need AI to fully replace, um, you know, everything that say a software engineer does. They just need to make every software engineer say 10% more efficient and you're already there. And I think that that's already the case today. You know, we use a lot of GPT-4 just in writing the menial code that we do. Um, and it, it genuinely makes us so much more efficient. And so you guys are actually using AI and uh, how, what, what are the biggest kind of, what are the things that GPT isn't helping you with programming and what are the things that it is helping you with programming? Um, I think, uh, you know, for writing code that is, um, you know, very straightforward, but uh, somewhat complex, you know, you have to do a lot of like searching on, Stack overflow to find what are the like, you know the different functions or APIs that I need to use, or um, you know something that maybe you're not well versed in. You know, say using for loops in SQL. Like we want to unwrap some object, we need to use a for loop to do that. GPT four is so good 
at um, you know writing code like that. Where it kind of struggles is if it needs to um, you know come up with a, a truly innovative, creative solution that even you have no idea how to approach. Um, those things, you know, we spent if we spent enough of our kind of uh, you know human intellect hours you know, in front of a whiteboard, we'll figure out, we'll kind of, um, you know, find the right solution to that. GPT-4 just doesn't have that same capability today. I'm not saying that it won't have it later on. I think it very likely will. Um, but as of right now, you know, we spend a lot more of our, uh, you know, time now solving the the more challenging problems and then using GPT-4 to, to do some of the menial kind of uh, traditionally annoying tasks. That's very interesting. So uh, essentially that the the blue sky innovation, that's going to be the challenge for uh, for the AI at the moment is to coming up with really kind of innovative solutions to problems. And so this goes back to kind of the economics question, because, you know, after Facebook did what they did, you know, like two years later, three years later is like, oh, well, we can, you know, programmers like, well, we can build your, your own Facebook. Um, but the technical thing of building the Facebook only was valuable because it coincided with a time where nobody was already on a social network. So the fact that it, so Facebook solved the right technical problem at the right time, uh, they didn't solve just this random technical problem without actually doing it, without actually paying attention to it. And so it feels like where we're entering is that there'll still be huge business opportunities because it's not about solving just this random technical problem in, a, in an innovative way. It's it's solving that problem at the right time when the solution really is ripe for, for interaction. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, that's exactly right. But the other side of this is just that GPT-4 technologically is not quite there yet. Yeah. You know, who, who knows where GPT is headed? When you have a, you know, a language model that, and it might not be called a language model at that point. I, I, we don't know, right? But say, you know, artificial intelligence, if it becomes you know, intelligent enough that it can be, you know, come up with totally creative, unique um, solutions to things, um, you know, I think we would be there. There's already a lot of, uh, you know, experimentation with using GPT-4 to develop new chemicals and, mm. you know, all these types of things. Um, and I know that for that experiment that it wasn't quite there, but if, say extrapolate, you know, three, five or 10 years out, maybe it will be. That'll be a, just a completely new kind of world order where, uh, you know, intelligence, true creative intelligence is a commodity. Um, it's going to be an interesting time. Yeah. And it, it's so hard to peer into the future. It's already really hard to peer into the future anyway. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, like once the iPhone was invented in 2006 or whatever, you know, it's it kind of clear where that was headed. You know, nobody, nobody thought that it was going to going to go as far as it did in terms of like real sort of like cyborg type addiction that everybody has to their phones. Um, but it was kind of clear. You could kind of guess that. Uh, and now we're headed into this world where like just the ability to predict into the future is already very challenging. Uh, and so it's going to get a lot more challenging. And then uh, this is a question I'd like to ask. Do you think that AI will be able to predict? Do you think currently in its current form it can predict and or do you think that it will be able to predict um the future in the current form i think no um at least not better than uh you know an average human um i think it's possible though that in the future it can make you know some really compelling some 
you know, really interesting and accurate predictions. Now, I think one thing that AI is really good at is that it could potentially become an expert in every single field. You know, it could be an expert lawyer and an extra expert programmer. And, you know, what it learns from you know, these other different fields might help it make better predictions in specific categories. I think that's something that it can do just much, much better than a human could. Mm. Um, so I would not be surprised if, if it got there one day. And it's so crazy because it's like, according to my understanding of the technical, it's not, it's not even a limitation. It's like a benefit that once you've trained the LLM model, you can port the LLM model really easily and that you don't need to retrain it every single time. And so what you just said about that, it could, it could be an expert in any field. Um, and then it becomes an expert in all these different fields. And then once you've trained it, then it's as simple as just basically porting it over to your Android phone and then it can run on your Android phone. That seems like it's going to lead to a crazy, crazy future. Like, uh, like no idea what, what that, what, what are your thoughts on that? Basically, I'm not asking you to predict the future, but what do you think about like that idea of like training the model? Isn't that training the model is very expensive, but once you have the model, it's really easy to take it anywhere. No, right. Exactly. I mean, even if you can't get such a large model to run on your phone, I mean, just look at how cheap and fast these APIs are. You know, make an API call from your phone. You're still getting access to the same model, the same intelligence, um, and then now, you know, displayed on your phone. I think that right now we live in just one of the most interesting times, you know, compared to everything that's happened in the last couple decades. Right now is, um, you know, just what a time to be alive. And you're in a space, uh, uh, are you located in San Francisco? Uh, yeah, we're just across the bridge in Berkeley, oh, pretty cool. close to San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've been reading a lot on on Twitter recently about how like San Francisco is kind of like making, well, the Bay Area is kind of making a comeback as well. Because it's like, you know, people are doing robotics thing, like all these crazy things. They're doing all these crazy things, like the whole, you know, the, the, what the Bay Area is known for. It's all happening again. Do you, would you agree with that? Like, are you running into people who are doing really interesting things throughout your day? Oh, absolutely. Um, San Francisco has definitely come back a lot. Um, and during the pandemic, it really, you know, kind of died down. And then it's been you know, slowly climbing, climbing back out in the last few years. Um, you know, SF now is, is really is bustling again. Um, there's just so much happening here. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Okay. So another 10 minutes or so, um, what's one thing that we should be discussing about AI or even ask Edith, uh, that we haven't discussed so far? Um, it's hmm. a good question. Hmm. Um, you know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Mm. I think we we talked about some really interesting things. Yeah. Um, you know, time will tell if we're right or not on, on these uh, on these predictions. Yeah. What are your plans for Ask Edith in the future? Like, what's the big things that you're working on? What are the kind of the obstacles you're facing? If you're if anybody's listening who wants to help out, are you guys hiring? Like, what's what's your deal? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, we are hiring right now. Um, you know, right now or today, we built. Uh, really the simplest, the fastest analytics platform, you know, really empowering business users to ask questions of their internal company data. Where we're headed though is, um, you know, we're mixing in, we're going to start mixing in some external data, you know, things like consumer trends, macroeconomic data, and really allow these uh, business users to start benchmarking their company data against 
you know, external data. Um, these are all very interesting use cases. Mm. The term that I like to use is we're building something like the mission control of enterprise. You know, not just asking questions about internal data, but eventually, uh, you know, maybe even uh, automating some of the processes. You know, when X con uh, condition hits, you know, take this action. Uh, that type of thing, you know, everything that you'd want to do from a mission control, but plugged into your enterprise data sources to external data sources, and then ultimately to automating action. That's very cool. Um, and so mission control of enterprise, uh, this public data, private data on the public data side, what per, per, what's the difference between that and GPT-4, like chat GPT, because, uh, you know, I can go and query a bunch of data from 2021 and even with the browser tool i can i can go query current data as long as it's on a website what's the difference there yeah that's a good question you know the key comes from when you connect the external data to the internal data so let me give you an example uh we're working with an aerospace manufacturer um and uh they have a log of so with with the aerospace industry i think i should give you this background um all components that are sold to um, you know, let's say an aircraft where it's installed, uh, it needs to be replaced after a certain number of flight cycles and flight hours. That's just a, a kind of a regulation. And so by knowing which, uh, you know, tail numbers of the planes that these components go into, and then also knowing that, you know, FAA data, uh, you know, like the planes when they take off and when they land, how many flight hours and flight cycles are on each of these uh, tail numbers, having this public data, we can join it with our internal sales data and just become very, very surgical about who we go to for uh, repeat sales. And that's very powerful to connect this kind of external piece with your internal you know, sales data. Um, and that's not something that you get out of just GPT-4. You really need to um, yeah, have you the, know, build the right integrations here. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. Now I, now I get to ask, ask Edith a lot better. It's, it's that because the, the external data is valueless. If I'm just going on chat GPT-4, GPT-4 has no idea uh, of what I'm, all the context that I'm asking the question for, uh, and I have no way of putting that context in there, although they'll, they'll probably change it as well. Um, but uh, but that's really cool about internal data and external data. But then how does that separate, ask you from the NVIDIA, having, having our own kind of LLM running on top be because the LLM is a different architecture than data, than SQL. Is that, is that the difference there? Um, no, you know, from the language model perspective, it's not so different. The key piece is that, you know, ASCII to is not just the language model. It's also, you know, the search layers that we've built into, um, you know, where it searches into the data to find, you know, the, the correct answer to your question, um, the integration pieces and, and so forth. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so essentially like, cause, uh, cause an LLM is useless. Well, this is an interesting question. I'd love to start talking to the, some of the LLMs who are trying to build LLMs on top of company data, because essentially the LLM isn't, it's not really a search thing. It's, it's this kind of, it's a, like, it's basically a thing that works well with a chatbot. Is, is the use case for an LLM specifically better for, as a chatbot, or does it have other use cases that you've seen so far? Oh, absolutely. There are other use cases. Okay. Um, you know, with Ask Edith, we, we use it for writing code. We do, um, you know, within the, the Ask Edith product, what it's doing is it's doing English to SQL code, and then we're running that SQL code. So where we're talking about bringing external data sources really is talking about integrating that into a single SQL environment where the language model can can be interacting with it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yeah. So the so Ask Edith and LLMs work really well together, basically. But what you guys have really built is these layers on top of SQL that allow the LLM to essentially operate better with the with SQL. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Um, and uh, what are you? Who are you hiring for right now? Uh, yeah. Um, so we are we are growing our team. You know, really on two major fronts. So one is uh, the product. We're hiring um, backend engineer, DevOps slash infrastructure engineer. Um, and then on the uh, sales and marketing side, we're hiring a head of growth and an implementation engineer. So the implementation engineer is someone who sits, you know, halfway between go to market and halfway, you know, to the, uh, the product and engineering teams, but really is, you know, a supportive function for, uh, kind of the go-to-market and for our customers. Mm, that's interesting. Um, what's the profile of the head of growth, uh, if anybody's listening right now for that specific role? Yeah, we're really looking for someone who has experience in B2B SaaS software, who has um, you know worked in a partnership setting, you know, uh, kind of building out the the partner kind of channel. Um, also, uh, you know, is uh, has, has spoken to B2B SaaS customers and really has a vision for where to take, um, you know, the go-to-market for, uh, you know, whether it's for Ask Edith or for, um, you know, previous jobs, but, you know, has that kind of, uh, you know, vision and, and drive to make it all happen. Cool. Awesome. So how can, how can people find out more about you or uh, Ask Edith? Yeah, um, you can find more on Ask Edith at uh, our website on www.asketa.ai. Um, you can reach me, you know, through the, we have a little intercom like chat window in the bottom right corner. If you type into that, it's me that's responding. So, um, you know, happy to, to engage with anyone there. And, you know, of course, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Cool. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.